0: Welcome back to The Journal Feed, my name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Our team combs through the literature for the best articles that you don't have to and provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. If you'd like to support The Journal Feed, or if you feel like you deserve to be rewarded for your time listening to or reading The Journal Feed, Then you can reward yourself with CME credits through our partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are on our website at journalfeed.org. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which were brought to you by the remarkable Sam Parnell, Alex Chen, and Clay Smith. The first article from this week was titled Efficacy of Ketamine for Initial Control of Acute Agitation in the Emergency Department, a randomized study out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. It's no one's favorite, but acute agitation in the emergency department is inevitable from time to time. And while verbal de-escalation is going to be your first step, that's just not always going to work, and some people are going to need chemical sedation. Many physicians use their go-to, tried-and-true B52 combination as the initial management of a combative patient. That's Benadryl 50 mg, Haloperidol 5 mg, and Lorazepam 2 mg but there are problems with this approach. It risks respiratory depression, QTC prolongation, arrhythmias, and even drug interactions. On top of that, it can take 20 to 30 minutes for IM formulations to reach their peak effect. So what other options are there for acute agitation? This study looked into ketamine as an alternative. So this was a prospective single institution, randomized open-label pilot study of 93 patients with acute combative agitation comparing ketamine at 4 mg per kilogram IM or 1 mg per kilogram IV against haloperidol 5 to 10 mg plus lorazepam 1 to 2 mg IM or IV but 93% of patients received the medications IM. Patients receiving ketamine were more likely to be sedated at 5 minutes at 22% versus 0 in the other group and also more likely at 15 minutes at 66% in the ketamine group and 7% in the other group. So given that, not surprisingly, the median time to sedation was lower in the ketamine group at 15 minutes versus 36 minutes in the haloperidol plus lorazepam group. By way of side effects, ketamine was associated with an increased incidence of hypertension and tachycardia. The rates of hypoxia were also twice as high in the ketamine group at 22%, but this was not considered statistically significant. There was no statistical differences found in nausea and vomiting, intubation, QTC prolongation, arrhythmia, or cardiac arrest in either group so while a larger study would still be nice to see the results look pretty promising for ketamine as a faster single drug option for agitated patients in a spoonful for patients with combative agitation chemical sedation with ketamine was effective and faster when compared to haloperidol and lorazepam on top of it there was no increase in serious adverse events and now to the second article Early onset neonatal sepsis 2015 to 2017, the rise of Ischerichia coli and the need for novel prevention strategies out of JAMA Pediatrics. Because we didn't all love microbiology enough, we can't forget that it's very much a living problem and the subject to constant change. The bugs that cause the diseases of yesterday are not always the ones that cause the diseases of tomorrow. This study sought to look into the culprits for early onset neonatal sepsis and how recent prevalence numbers look. This was a multicenter prospective study from a pediatric research network that included infants born 22 weeks and up with positive blood or CSF cultures, onset of illness less than 72 hours of life, and who received antibiotics for at least five days. 235 cases were found with a rate of one per 1,000 infants. They found that E. coli was more common than group B strep in premature infants and that GBS was more common in term infants, over half of which were from mothers who screened negative. On top of that, antibiotic efficacy data was also available. E. coli was resistant to ampicillin in 22% of cases, and resistant to both ampicillin and gentamicin in 8% of cases. From the infants born preterm, that is at less than 37 weeks, 29% died. So keep up to date with your local antibiotic resistant patterns. Okay, in a spoonful, E. coli has replaced GBS as the most common bacteria to cause early-onset sepsis in preterm infants. GBS is still the most common in term infants, though. Additionally, E. coli resistance to ampicillin and gentamicin is increasing. So be careful out there, guys. Now, onto the third article titled Mortality and Complication Rates in Adult Trauma Patients Receiving Transexemic Acid A Single Center Experience in the Post Crash 2 Era, out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Alright, people, the Crash 2 trial came out a while ago now and showed a lower mortality when transexemic acid TXA, was given in adult patients with traumatic hemorrhage most of the sites in the original study were in developing countries where the transfusion capabilities and practices differ from those of say a united states trauma center so how does txa hold up in a u.s trauma center context this was a retrospective review of real world use of txa at uc davis which is a level one trauma center in the united states They gave TXA at one gram over 10 minutes and then another gram over the next eight hours to trauma patients with either hypotension, massive transfusion, or those who went straight from the ED to the OR and presented under three hours from their injury. Over a three-year period, 273 patients were included, and these patients had a mortality rate of 12.3%, most of which occurring within the first three hours, and these rates were quite similar to those of the CRASH-2 trial. There were some differences compared to the CRASH-2 trial, though. Chief among them is that there is a higher rate of thromboembolic events at 6.6% in this study compared with CRASH-2's 2%. Also, compared with CRASH-2, these patients had more surgery, were older, and more of them were female. The TXA was given earlier in the CRASH-2 trial. But in this study, only a third as many patients got both the initial dose and the maintenance dose of TXA which you'd think would skew towards a lower rate of thromboembolic events. So to get to the point, there were differences enough in the two populations that it wasn't really comparing apples to apples. But this shows us that real-world use of TXA can give us different results in different populations. For more information, we're going to need more studies on this to understand it properly. In a spoonful, when looking at trauma patients from a U.S. Level 1 trauma center, TXA administration was associated with similar mortality but higher rates of thromboembolic events than compared with the original CRASH-2 cohort. Next, onto the fourth study, titled High-Flow Nasal Cannula Versus Conventional Oxygen Therapy in Relieving Dysmia in Emergency Palliative Patients with Do Not Intubate Status, a randomized crossover study, out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. A sad fact is that many terminal patients, as they lose their strength, suffer from significant air hunger, which one can only imagine is simply terrible and really needs to be treated. Intubation, though, is not a solution for most palliative care patients, so that won't work. Supplemental oxygen can also relieve the sense of dyspnea, so can morphine and even benzodiazepines can play a role. But how about high-flow nasal cannula? How does that work? How well does that stand up? This was an RCT on 44 adult patients with hypoxia and do not intubate status. They were randomized to routine nasal cannula and then crossed over to high flow nasal cannula or vice versa. Flow rates for high flow nasal cannula ranged from 34 to 37 liters per minute. Using the modified Borg scale as an objective dyspnea score, there was significant improvement in high flow nasal cannula versus traditional nasal cannula. Also, dyspnea, respiratory rate, and morphine dose in the first hour were also lower with high-flow nasal cannula. So, in a spoonful, high-flow nasal cannula is an effective way to relieve dyspnea in hypoxic palliative care patients who do not wish to be intubated. right, on to the last article for this week titled, Epley Maneuver Canalith Repositioning for Benign Positional Vertigo, out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. The most common cause of vertigo is benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, BPPV. But while being benign, this causes serious distress for many patients. Sure, we can give antiemetics and vestibular suppressants to help with the vertigo and the nausea, but that's just symptom control and comes with side effects, especially in the elderly. Better than that is to actually see if we can do something about the positioning of the canalith causing the problems. And for that, we look to the Epley maneuver. But I know that I feel sometimes a little bit silly taking my patient through the movements. So I'd rather be able to look them straight in their nystagmusing eyes and tell them that this has a good chance of helping. So let's look at the numbers. This study included looking at a Cochrane review and another recent RCT. The primary outcome was complete symptom resolution in the intervention group who got the Epley maneuver compared to a sham maneuver or no maneuver. Now, compared to sham or control, the Epley Maneuver increased the likelihood of symptom resolution to 56% versus just 21% in sham or control, coming out to a number needed to treat of three. There was no reported serious complications from either group, with nausea being the most commonly reported symptom, but no difference between the groups. Our author, Alex, points out a couple of good points about this. The Dix-Hallpike maneuver is good to have as part of your neuro exam for a dizzy patient. And if it's positive, you're already right there for the Epley maneuver. It doesn't take long and you can't scoff at a number needed to the treat of three. Of course, it bears mentioning to be careful with frail patients, or if there's suspicion of a stroke, then further investigations may still be necessary. In a spoonful, the Epley Maneuver increased the likelihood of symptom resolution in BPPV by 35% compared with the controls for a number needed to treat of three. It's quick, it's easy, it's safe. What more can you want? And that's it for this week. So what did we learn today? Let's do a quick rapid review. First, for agitated patients in need of chemical sedation, you can consider reaching for ketamine in place of haloperidol and lorazepam for a faster effect and no change in serious adverse events. Second, the most common bacteria to cause early onset sepsis in preterm infants was E. coli, while in term infants, the most common was still GBS. Third, we're still working on that TXA problem. Comparing a US level 1 trauma center's use of TXA to the original CRASH 2 trial found similar mortality rates, but in this new trial, a higher risk of thromboembolic events. Next, In palliative care patients who do not wish to be intubated, but are suffering from significant dyspnea, this may be effectively treated using high-flow nasal cannula. Finally, treating patients with BPPV using the Epley Maneuver is effective, a number needed to treat of 3, and a 35% increased likelihood of symptom resolution over controls. And that wraps it up for this week, guys. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, Or if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider leaving a review. We'd, of course, appreciate that very much. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're helping you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.